Foul Perfection Essays and Criticism by Mike Kelly Edited by John C. Welchman 2003 Part 3 Cross-Gender Slash Cross-Genre MK This paper was originally presented on September 26, 1999, in Graz, Austria, at the Steirische Herbst Festival as part of a remake-slash-remodel Secret Histories of Art, Pop, Life, and the Avant-Garde, a series of panel discussions sponsored by the Berlin Group and the Steirische Herbst focusing on the politics of queer aesthetics. I also mounted a video installation at the Polar Atoms titled Unisex Love Nest, which included a feature-length videotape compilation composed of selections of period cross-gender-related films and documentation, as well as contemporary interviews with some of the artists. JCW A slightly different version of this text, without notes, appeared in PAJ, a journal of performance and art, Johns Hopkins University Press, Number 64, Volume 22, Number 1, January 2000, pages 1 to 9. My intention here is to present some thoughts on the aesthetics of the period from the mid 1960s to the mid 1970s in relation to images of gender confusion. This decade, which, for want of a better term, I call the psychedelic period, is rife with such images. I will attempt to explain why I believe this is so, and to describe some of the avant-garde clusters and pop genealogies associated with this cross-gender phenomenon. It's best to begin by explaining where I come from and thus why this theme is important to me. Born in 1954, I came of age at the tail end of the 1960s, a period of immense social change and unrest in America. I was 14 in 1968, conscious enough to feel a part of the general social turmoil, too young to be a real hippie, but just old enough to be eligible for the Vietnam draft. However, my worldview was very much a byproduct of the countercultural movement. As a result, I had nothing in common with my older siblings. They were post-war, I was part of the TV generation. I was mediated. I was pop, I didn't feel connected in any way to my family, to my country, or to reality for that matter, the world seemed to me a media facade, and all history a fiction, a pack of lies. I was experiencing, I think, what has come to be known as the postmodern condition, a form of alienation quite different from post-war existentialism because it lacks any historical sense, there is no notion of a truth that has been lost. It is characterized by the feeling that there is a general evenness of meaning. To borrow a phrase from Richard Hell, I was part of the blank generation one. I was, however, sufficiently caught up in the 60s ethos to involve myself in radical politics, at least as a spectator. In Detroit, Michigan, the city where I grew up, the local version was the White Panther Party 2, supposedly a white spin-off of the revolutionary Black Panther Party. In reality it had more in common with the Yuppies, three the mostly white, hedonist, anarchist group whose politics consisted primarily of acting out, making one's life into a kind of radical street theater.
The purpose of this exercise was to render oneself unfit to function in normal society and thus to prevent oneself from participating in and prolonging it. As the logic went, if one consumed enough drugs, one simply could not work in the military-industrial complex point for White Panther activity was centered in the college town of Ann Arbor, and my interest in it drew me to related avant-garde music, theater, film, and political events. This is what led me to become an artist, which is quite remarkable, since I come from a working-class background and had little or no exposure to the fine arts as a child. This psychedelic culture 5 completely altered my worldview. When I first heard psychedelic music 6 it was as if I had discovered myself. I had never cared much for music before I heard bands like the MC5, the Stooges, the Mothers of Invention, and Jimi Hendrix. Their fractured music made sense to me, it mirrored the nature of the world as I understood it, and that of my own psyche. Of course, as every educated person knows, this was all old hat in relation to modernism, the avant-garde at the beginning of the century, cubism, futurism, dada, and surrealism. But I was encountering a phenomenon of mass culture, not high art. One of the most interesting things about the late 60s is that the historical avant-garde were picked up and inserted into popular culture under the guise of radical youth culture. In one swoop, surrealism became tinnibopper culture. This was possible because the artists working in this crossover period still considered themselves avant-garde, a notion still conceivable in those years. Progressive psychedelic music emerged, formally, in concert with notions of progressive social change, a liaison that, while it quickly fell apart, as evidenced in the irony of the camp aesthetic, seven was still operable at that moment. There are several strains within this progressive aesthetic, almost all sharing a link to the notion of the feminine. The popular appeal of 60s radical youth culture in America was very much a byproduct of the anti-Vietnam War movement. For the first time, complacent white youths were delivered into political consciousness by the threat of military conscription. The model for social protest was the black civil rights movement, the pacifist tendencies of Martin Luther King worked well with an anti-war message. It was this coincidental encounter between two very different constituencies that provoked, I believe, white male youths' profound empathic connection to otherness in general. But the greatest other was woman. If America's problems were the result of being militaristic and patriarchal, the antidote would be the embrace of the prototypically feminine point eight and contemporary radical culture was dominated by displays of femininity, pacifism, long hair, flowery clothes, presented as signs of resistance point nine, but not only femininity, male homosexuality as well, for the two were conflated in the popular mind point ten if the female is other, then the homosexual is doubly other since he was supposed by straight culture to be unnatural. In a sense, the Vietnam War itself promoted this posture, since one way to escape the draft was to play gay, a masquerade that may be one motivating factor for the coming decade of popular homosexual posturing that finds its apex in glam rock point eleven. 
Hippie and flower child cultures are the natural aversions of this dyad of the feminine and the homosexual, and camp is its unnatural cousin. Despite the fact that they are both generally progressive and leftist and share many surface similarities, they are aesthetically opposed. Jack Smith, godfather of the New York 60s avant-garde theater and film scene, exemplifies the difference. Point 12 Smith was a major influence on diverse New York trends, he was important, amazingly enough, to both the minimalist and maximalist camps, Warhol's narrative films and the theater of Robert Wilson would almost be inconceivable without him, as would the junk sensibility of the East Village aesthetic. Yet Smith achieved his greatest notoriety by making the first avant-garde transvestite film, Flaming Creatures, 1962-63, a kind of structuralist parody of Orientalist Hollywood films of the 1940s. Smith's embrace of the phoniness of these films is central to the camp aesthetic and its politics. The camp aesthetic itself is suspect, for you are never sure whether its joys are real or ironic. It is an arcane aesthetic. Like Smith, hippie culture also embraced non-Western cultures, mixing them together in a psychedelic stew. But the hippie aesthetic invested in a truth is located in the other, who becomes our savior. While there is little room for irony in this essentialist position, it too is suspect, for the other in hippie culture is generally presented through exotic cliches, media-derived stereotypes of the Native American, the Indian mystic, and so on. The hippie aesthetic now seems kitsch, even if that was not the intention. Hippie has become camp by default. The primary signifier of psychedelic culture, the pastiche aesthetic, promotes confusion while at the same time postulating equality, all its chaotic parts are considered equal. This effect can be understood as either very democratic or profoundly nihilistic. We could describe the difference as set between a utopian and a black version of camp. The Cockets and the films of Stephen Arnold illustrate this difference. Point 13 The Cockets were a San Francisco-based troupe that produced a kind of campy and paradistic transvestite theater that, unlike traditional transvestite shows, reveled in the exhibition of the incomplete pose. Though they wore extravagant costumes that mimicked 1930s Hollywood notions of glamour, their feminine masquerade was deliberately provisional and half-accomplished. The queens often had beards, a definite no-no in transvestite acts where passing as a woman is the sign of quality. Point 14 The cockets included women, yet these did not usually cross-dress as men. The aesthetic of the group was organized around a redefinition of glamour, an alien glamour, if you will, but one still rooted in a feminine pose. Such was the group's debt to hippie culture, they represent a true crossover between hippie communalism and a later, more overtly defined, queer aesthetic. In the films of John Waters, by contrast, while no vestige of hippie remains, there is a similar play with gender slippage in the figure of the grotesque drag queen Divine, who could never be mistaken for a woman. Point 15 Waters celebrates queerness for its abject nature relative to dominant American society. One need not search for an outside aesthetic in his films, because you, the supposedly empathic film viewer, 
already represent the other point 16 the negative connotations of being artistic is 17 that is pathological are presented in waters's films in a completely unsublimated manner the freakish characters in his films were not designed just to be laughed at they are in a sense role models his are low comedies with no ascendant intentions and no redeeming social value, they are post-avant-garde and proto-punk. The Mothers of Invention have an abject aesthetic similar in some ways to Waters's, but more traditionally avant-garde. The Mothers were a rock band formed in the mid-1960s by white R&B musician Frank Zappa, 18 who combined dissonance with his R&B roots under the influence of new music composer Edgar Varese. Point 19 The Mother's music exemplifies the psychedelic aesthetic in its use of pastiche structures, combining elements of pop, rock, free jazz, new music, electronic music, and comedy. The effect is akin to a live reenactment of a tape collage work by John Cage. The band was also overtly theatrical, adopting transgressive stage techniques, such as audience baiting and performative discontinuity, 20 derived from such modernist, post-Brexian forms as The Happening. Their visual aesthetic was neo-dada, abject, junk, and ugly. The mothers were part of a larger community of musicians and artists in the Los Angeles area, centered primarily around Zappa, called the freak scene, which openly positioned itself against the hippie aesthetic of the natural point 21. The scene included the avant-garde rock groups Captain Beefheart, Alice Cooper, and the GTOs, the latter an all-female band composed of groupies. Point 22. All of these acts employed drag elements from time to time. Point 23. As with the Cockets, the mother's version of drag was incomplete. But there are differences, for... Despite their ridiculous image, the Cockets had a playful, positive quality absent from the mothers, whose use of drag has more in common with the traditional comedic adoption of female garb by the male, and is in that sense an abject usage. In Western culture, men who dress in female clothes are considered funny, while the opposite is generally not the case, a woman dressed in male clothes has little comedic value. The sexism underlying this difference is obvious, for why else should the adoption of feminine characteristics by a man be abject? 24 This is not to deny that the mothers were a politically conscious band, in fact, they were one of the most politically aware musical groups of the period. In a sense, though, they were a realist band ridiculing the romantic utopianism and exoticism of hippie psychedelia. Their satiric ugliness was meant to be a distorted mirroring of the values of dominant culture. The Alice Cooper band is somewhat similar, but more pop, their aesthetic is more flat and their intentions are less clear. Point 25 Like Zappers, early Alice Cooper records mix rock and roll with noise elements influenced by avant-garde music. Both share that anti-hippie reveling in the aesthetics of the ugly, though for Alice Cooper it's a blend of transvestism and cheap horror film theatrics. Their decadent mixture of horrific and homosexual signification was designed for a much more general audience than Zappers. Like Waters, they were unapologetic in their embrace of the low. It could be said that they were the first truly popular camp band, with two separate audiences. 
Alice Cooper was a very commercially successful pop band, putting out a string of top 10 hits including ironic saccharine ballads that some of their audience read as parodies, while others embraced them as genuinely emotional. Point 26 Similarly, one part of the audience empathized with their freakish, decadent personas, while another simply perceived such roles as comedic. By virtue of their use of camp strategies, Alice Cooper could be said to have pouted at the spectacular aspects of pop music. Pop music in America has long embraced the glamorous, aka the homosexual, in closeted terms. Liberace's campy stage act was never discussed openly in relation to his homosexuality. The performer himself foreclosed such considerations, once winning a lawsuit against a British gossip columnist who merely intimated that he was a homosexual. Point 27 Somewhat ironically, considering the purported asexual nature of the musical form, such sublimation pervades the history of rock and roll. Elvis's appearance was repellent at first to his primarily country music audience because of his use of makeup, 28, but as he became more and more of a popular figure, this aspect of his stage act became invisible, naturalized. The so-called British invasion bands of the mid-1960s, like the Rolling Stones, picked up on this glamorous posturing, filtering it through English visual tropes of foppish decadence. 29 Mick Jagger stage movements were at once black and gay, which made him twice evil, and doubly sexualized, in the eyes of his teeny bopper fans. Such posing signals a major change in the pop arena, for its open flirtation with evil is something that Elvis, with his desire to be a mainstream pop star, could never have entertained. It was only within the framework of the 60s counterculture that such a transgressive aesthetic could find acceptance as popular music. From Jagger on, a whole string of figures raised the stakes in decadence and danger. The two most important are probably Jim Morrison of The Doors 30 and Iggy Pop of The Stooges.31 Morrison is rumored to have lifted his leather boy look from the rough trade posturings of the Warhol scene. 32 and his confrontational stage act from the methods of the living theater. 33 Iggy Pop's vile and self-destructive stage persona became the model for the later punk rock performers of the 70s. In American culture at least, much of the aesthetics of homosexual evil can be traced back to the work of filmmaker Kenneth Anger, 34 whose book Hollywood Babylon, focusing on the dark and degraded sub-history of Hollywood glamour, is the Bible of Camp. 35 Angus films detailing various American subcultures seen through a homosexual gaze set the standard for much pop art following in the Warholian tradition. It is through Kenneth Anger that the leather-clad 1950s juvenile delinquent, with his emotion-laden pop songs, finds his way into the Camp Pantheon, 36 enters the Velvet Underground, and finally comes to rest in the leather uniform of punk. His influence also helped convert the macho posturings of the biker thug into a sign of the alienated and sensitive artist, witness Patti Smith's image mix of leather boy and romantic poet. Likewise, it is through anger, whose interest in popular subcultural ritual led him to ritual magic, that Satanism, as another sign of decadence, enters the pop music world 37, primarily through the Rolling Stones in their psychedelic period, when they adopted Anger's look lock, stock, 
and barrel.38. What becomes of this outing of the abject nature of the feminine, consensually precipitated in music and avant-garde cultures, 39 as transvestite a counterculture leaves the utopianism of the 1960s behind and enters the economically harsher social climate of the 1970s, two major trends emerge, feminism and punk. In the context of all this female posturing, it only makes sense that female artists would finally demand to play a role. Even though there were female members of such transvestite-oriented groups as the Cockets and the various versions of the ridiculous theater in New York 40, the outward signs of most of the costuming were female-coded. Some of the female artists involved with these theater companies described their experiences as a kind of self-exploration in relation to conventions of Glamour.41 as participants in the anti-patriarchal tenor of the period, they were not particularly interested in experimenting with the adoption of male gender stereotypes. With her overtly S&M persona as the whip dancer with the velvet underground, her butch roles in Warhol's films, and her masculine portrayals in John Vaccaro's plays, Mary Wurinov is the exception year.42 More commonly, the female participants were primarily concerned with their own relationship to female stereotypes. The GTOs, for example, invented a look that was a trash version of the female Hollywood stars of the 1920s and 1930s.43 like the Warhol star system, this was meant as a retooling, or redefinition, of that beauty, yet was still tied to it through the inversions of Camp.44 several female artists in the early 1970s began to experiment with shifting roles and identities in relation to issues of glamour and gender. Eleanor Anton, for example, made a work titled Representational Painting, 1971, for which she sat in front of a mirror applying makeup, removing it, and applying it again in a constant state of pictorial self-definition. Point 45 she later adopted a series of overtly theatrical personas, including a king, a nurse, and a ballerina. Point 46 this kind of play reached its zenith in Judy Chicago's feminist workshop programs in the Los Angeles area in the early 1970s. Point 47 here, female artists collectively explored their relationship to various female stereotypes in a much more critical and politically conscious environment than had previously been possible. Their performances used such stereotypes as the cheerleader, bride, waitress, beauty queen, and drag queen as a way of exploring and destabilizing female stereotypes. The rise of glam rock was concurrent with this movement. In America at least, Alice Cooper is a key transitional figure, in that he leaves psychedelia behind and fully embraces the frameworks of pop, trying, that is, to balance irony and popular appeal. Glam rock was a music that fully understood the commercial music world and accepted it as an arena of facade and emptiness, using the image of the drag queen as a sign of the status. David Bowie is crucial here.48 he adopts personas, throws them away at whim, and constantly reinvents himself for the market. He mirrors our culture of planned obsolescence. For consumer culture, it has been suggested, the constantly changing, chameleon persona represents empowerment. 
Certain feminist critics have read Madonna's activities in this way, though I have serious misgivings about this interpretation of her practice, or of Bowie's point 49 Madonna becomes the sign of a spectacular female producer, in contrast to the traditional image of the passive female consumer. I might add that this is how the GTOs thought of themselves, as consumers, groupies, who became producers, rock stars themselves. Point 50 The spectacular is engaged head-on through pure emulation. Punk was the immediate response to this fixation with spectacular consumer culture, it replaced the spectacular with the pathetic. Point 51 Punk was the last gasp of avant-gardism in pop, played out with the most extreme signs of decadent nihilism. As a symbol of this end state, the gender significations of the previous avant-garde were reversed, maleness became the general referent. The punk uniform is the macho rough trade look of Kenneth Angus Camp Leather Boy, for men and women alike. Androgyny remains a factor here, but whether the punk unisex image was a vestige of some connection to the utopian, feminine androgyny of the psychedelic period, or is simply consistent with the capitalist cult of youth culture, is open to argument. But that's another story. Section 2 M-E-K-A-N-I-K-D-E-S-T-R-U-K-T-I-K-O-M-M-A-N-D-O-H Survival Research Laboratories and Popular Spectacle Commissioned for the Journal Parquet, Zurich, Berlin, New York, Number 21, 1989, pages 122-40, Kelly's essay on survival research laboratories attempts to read the work of the San Francisco-based group less in relation to the punk subcultures in which they were most often situated than across wider contexts in art and popular visual culture. The text here returns to Kelly's original manuscript and is substantially longer than the piece that first appeared over a decade ago. Some of the editorial changes made by Paquette to the first two-thirds of the essay have been retained. I got up and danced. The disasters. Gongs of violence and how. Show you something, berserk. Machine, shift cut tangle. Word lines, word falling. Photo falling. William Burroughs too. Survival Research Laboratories is the name of an artist collective based in the San Francisco area that produces, in their own words, spectacular mechanical presentations. The main members of the group, which is constantly augmented by shifting numbers of volunteers, are Mark Pauline, the founder and artistic director, Matthew Hackett, and Eric Werner, though it has recently been reported that SRL has split apart, leaving Pauline in control. The group began staging the events in the late 70s, roughly coinciding with the explosion in the United States of the punk movement, with which SRL is often associated. The name is Survival Research Laboratories was taken from a survivalist organization that placed a one-time advertisement in the mercenary magazine Soldier of Fortune.3 The name recalls those of many ultra-radical fringe political groups, military organizations, and cults that camouflage their extremist positions behind titles that read, on the surface, as cool, business-like, normative. The false fronts behind which hide the secret and harmful societies that are the mainstay of paranoid. Conspiracy Theory 
The public image that SIL has cultivated also ironizes corporate rhetoric through the use of titles for their activities that mimic the wordy and technical-sounding language of big business, an epidemic of fear, the relief of mass hysteria through expression of senseless jungle hate, deliberately false statements, a combination of tricks and illusions guaranteed to expose shrewd manipulations of fact. Extremely cruel practices, a series of events designed to instruct those interested in policies that correct or punish, failure to discriminate, determining the degree to which attractive delusions can operate as a substitute for confirmation by evidence, a plan for social improvement based on achieving complete freedom from the constraints of civilization for SRL's aesthetic appropriates the styles of the military-industrial complex yet subverts it by foregrounding its destructive purpose. Besides adopting the language of the corporation, they have also taken on its outward signs, the representative logo and standardized graphic style. Survival Research Laboratory's two-part symbol is an image of this unmasking of the destructive impulse. One part shows a male head framed in a circle containing a triangle that carries the SRL initials. The second part replaces the head with a skull, the death's head. SRL's mechanical presentations, usually held outdoors, are demonstrations of homemade weaponry and robots. The machines are very much the stars of the show, like those black-draped figures in traditional Japanese theater, the artists are reduced to nearly invisible caretakers. SRL's machines and devices are amazingly varied and quite spectacular. Shockwave cannon focuses the blast from a half-stick of dynamite into a coherent shockwave. Fluorescent tube gun fires illuminated tubes at 200 miles per hour from eight barrels. Stairway to Hell is an escalator that carries objects up only to drop them to the pavement. The spider-like walking machine, which spits fire, is controlled by an onboard guinea pig. Mechanical hand is contained in its own vat of oil, mechanical mummy dogs. Are a carousel of mechanically activated dead dogs, sprinkler from hell sprays burning gasoline, big man, a giant robot with a spinning Manson-like head, has flamethrower arms. Other devices include bomb-tossing catapults, mechanical biting metal skulls, hopping machines, machines that propel themselves on giant screws, reanimated cow carcasses, and machines that shoot explosive darts or blow off shotgun blasts. These devices fight with each other, tear apart animal corpses, or destroy symbols of human order such as the S.I.L. Shantytown, a mobile suburban house, or the Tower of Babel, a mammoth windmill with spinning blades. Like grotesquely expanded children's war games endowed with real destructive potential, the shows provoke in the audience a mixture of delight and fear. Each year SRL's presentations become larger and more complex. Developing from small-scale, stable, motorized junk contraptions like assured destructive capability, 1979, a machine that, among other things, defaced photos of Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev, Tape documentation was banned by the governments of East Germany and Czechoslovakia. The events have swelled to grand theatrical spectacles involving numerous radio-controlled mobile robots and set pieces. With the aid of an expanded audience of technical specialist fans, 
the collective's technology has become more elaborate and sophisticated. Current projects include experiments with computer-programmed robots and military-style lasers. At the same time, the group has begun to tour more frequently. In 1988 SRL made their first European tour. In line with SRL's association with subcultures, they have chosen to operate through popular forms of media, such as magazines and video, rather than in galleries or other art world venues. And their performances, often staged in out-of-the-way industrial areas to small audiences, though the size is growing, have begun to attract a wider public through video documentaries. Directed by Jonathan Rice, five their tapes combine highlights of the machine shows with behind-the-scenes action footage and interviews with group members. Rice is currently attempting to get the tapes stocked in home video rental stores, a few of which already carry them in their cult sections. The tapes are distributed and sold through the mail by the Alternative Culture Journal Reslash Search, an outgrowth of the old punk magazine Search and Destroy, which often does features on SRL. In addition, the group appears in the pages of other underground publications, like independent music magazines, where they are usually the only artists included. By virtue of these diverse outlets, SRL has acquired a mixed audience that extends far beyond the high-culture arena of the art world. However, despite the fact that SRL has had relatively little exposure in the art world proper, it is quite well known there. It has even been suggested that Bruce Nauman's recent mechanical animal carcass sculptures owe more than a little to SRL's notorious mix of machine part and beast flesh. Six. This subcultural popularity has recently started to filter upward, usually into the cracks in the mass media reserved for oddities. SRL has been profiled on television news programs and on magazine format shows like Believe It or Not.7 they have also created machines for Hollywood films and an artist segment for MTV. The MTV commission they cleverly turned to their own advantage, such segments usually only function as filler between rock videos, by designing it in the form of a television commercial for themselves. SRL's attitude toward the co-opting power of dominant media recalls that of the Yippies, who saw the mass media simply as another public forum, like the street, which could be used to communicate one's message. If the material is radical enough, they believed, it would filter through the homogenizing and moralizing intent of media containment. SRL appears, of course, at the tail end of modernism's long history of fascination with the machine. In avant-garde theater, that history commenced at the turn of the century with the symbolist antinaturalism, which exhibited its distaste for merely human actors by replacing them with puppets, or, as Gordon Craig famously termed them, Ubermarionets ate the modernist tendency to mechanize theater appears in Russian constructivism, futurism, Dada, and the Bauhaus, all of which furnish examples of pseudo-robot, puppet, and or abstract mechanical, actorless theater. The division between the symbolist and modernist use of the machine is usually situated along the difference between the puppet, or automaton, and the robot, 
a difference gene Baudrillard defines as being a between a simulacrum of the first order and one on the second, nine that second order, Baudrillard suggests, is opposed to theatrical illusion, no more resemblance or lack of resemblance. But an imminent logic of the operational principle, 10 the automaton mimics the human, the robot is. True to mechanical efficiency. The latter is exemplified in Biomechanics, an actor's training system developed by the Russian director Sevalod Mayhold which attempted to apply Taylorist principles of industrial work efficiency to the theater.11. However, SRL has little in common with this sort of technological utopianism. If anything, they are the flower born by the anti-technological, nihilistic seed of Dada. In fact, SRL's activities are often compared to those of various artists of the late 1950s and early 1960s referred to as neodadists. This group included the artists associated with Dias, the Destruction in Art Symposium, held in London in 1966-12 and with the machine sculptor Jean Tingley.13 Tingley's machine events, like Homage to New York, the self-destructing machine built in the garden of the Museum of Modern Art in 1960, and study for the end of the world number two, the large-scale mechanical spectacle utilizing explosives done in the Nevada desert in 1962, have been cited as precursors to SRL. But what separates SRL from Tingley is the fact that Tingley's work, like that of many of the 60s happenings artists, was created as a reaction to the issues and techniques of abstract expressionism. Many of Tingley's early mechanisms were designed specifically to produce abstract gestural paintings, and the machines themselves recall this type of painting both compositionally and in their manner of execution. The work of Gustav Metzger, organizer of the Dias events and the author of a number of manifestos on autodestructive art, can also be seen as a response to abstract expressionism. Point 14 His demonstration of acid nylon technique, 1960, 15 replaces the creative layering of Pollock with destructive subtraction by substituting acid for paint, thereby erasing part of the support with each gestural stroke. Vestiges of painterly practice can be found in the technological action collages of Wolf Fostel, and even in the blood rituals of the Austrian Hermann Nietzsche, 16 two contemporary artists whose works have also engaged with overt destruction. Ultimately, SRL's aesthetic is closest to some of the lesser-known Dias artists whose work seems informed by the political street theatre popular in the 1960s. These artists replaced the union timelessness of abstract expressionism with an emphatic topicality, the sign of which is the mass media photograph. Ivor Davies's Robert Mitchum destruction-slash-explosion event, September 13, 1966, and Werner Schraub's Spiral of Crisis, 1966, in which a photo of a public figure is burned, 17 clearly update and extend the time-honored political gesture of burning public figures in effigy. But now the effigies do not stand in for the public figures themselves but for their media representations. Many of SRL's machines also incorporate photographic elements, but theirs are reminiscent of the picture displays found in historical or science museums, except that they replace the order of history and the logic of science with the disorder of riot and disaster.
Spinning picture display features photographs of this kind, an oversize of flipbook repeatedly presents three scenes of doom, a giant photograph depicting the 1960 assassination of the socialist prime minister of Japan includes a ringing bell, a stabbing arm, and a blood pump, and the massive, shuffling architectural photo collage, wave attack consists of walls of glass coated with images of mayhem, as it moves forward missiles are shot through it. Theatricalized violence counters images of violence. SRL is also a generation removed from the agitprop directness of the neo-dadists. Though SRL's work is obviously political, it refuses to reveal any clear position, focusing instead on the negative, coercive aspects of political rhetoric. In one performance, leaflet bombs exploding overhead rain down a shower of tracks on the audience, radiate influences of despair and defeat wherever you go, do anything wrong to get public approval, call the truth and insult to avoid accepting it as fact, etc. 18 like Jenny Halls's truisms, 19 these directives adopt the syntax of a plain truth, but they are only empty rhetoric, designed to produce knee-jerk emotional responses. SRL's relationship to the media imagery they use is also quite different from that of earlier artists. SRL knowingly operates within the mediated world, rather than adopting a separatist stance and pointing out how one is acted on by it. Current art world strategies call for a more organic relationship between the artist and the media, after being suitably deformed, material taken from the mass media must be reinserted back into it. In this regard, Pauline connects to the generation of art students turned rock stars chronicled in Simon Fritz and Howard Horn's Art into Pop, which addresses the British scene. Point 20 taught by media conscious pop artists, British art students took the logical next step, abandoning the art world to enter the popular arena. Avant garde experimentation and radical postures were packaged for popular consumption. Pete Townsend credits Metzger as an influence on the infamous end-of-concert instrument-smashing episodes of The Who.21 and it should be remembered that Metzger's dearest companion Ralph Ortiz was well known at the time for demolishing pianos and other objects with a sledgehammer. These actions, featured in a contemporary Life magazine cover story, 22 were later parodied on the Monkeys television show with Liberace substituting for Ortiz as the piano smasher. Young artists coming into prominence now are much more likely to have been influenced by such mass media spectacles than by artists working strictly within the realm of the fine arts. Much of SRL's mystique relates to such theatrics and the packaging of rock rebelliousness, despite Pauline's displeasure at the comparison. Heavy metal bands like Blue Oyster Cult also adopted the corporate logo, overlaying on it a poetics of death. And for SRL, as with these media-conscious bands whose image precedes their presence, going on tour augments the already familiar product. This fact produces an interesting schism between expectation and experience, for there is quite a difference between SRL live and on tape. The editing of their video documentaries leaves the impression that SRL's events are highly choreographed, non-stop tableaus of destruction. In fact, if SRL owes anything to its happenings forefathers, 
it is in the Kujian randomness and dynamic evenness of their performances. Despite all the shocking imagery, noise, and destruction, the events are quite boring. The shows begin when the machines are turned on and end when they break down. Though there is some attempt at dynamics in the shows, the gradual introduction of the machines and the build-up of tension before key machines engage in combat, for example, the general effect is one of chaos, accentuated by blaring tape collage soundtracks. There is much dead time, and many technical failures and accidents, all of which add to the feeling of designed anti-control. At the same time, there is constant evidence of the recording process, the ever-present lights and camera operators. As in sports events in which media presence is similarly integrated into the action, all the boring sub-events and preparation time are made up for in one moment of perfection, designed to be captured in freeze frame. There are other obvious comparisons to be drawn between SRL and such lower-class spectacles as fire and brimstone, special effects, oriented heavy metal arena concerts, and automobile stunt shows like demolition derbies, truck pools, big-wheeler events, and rocket car racing. Truck pools originated in farm-related competitions of tractor strength, but have developed into machine circuses where the competition is a supplanted spectacle, much like professional wrestling, which has become a scripted burlesque of competitive sport, fetishizing violence. Big wheelers, altered pickup trucks fitted with massive oversized tires, individually styled and named, run over and crush rows of cars. One particularly popular truck, named Bigfoot, has even been personified and made into the hero of a children's cartoon show. Point twenty-three rocket cars are, essentially, rocket engines mounted on wheels, producing an unsteerable, an unbreakable, vehicle. One demonstration of them, called a meltdown, consists of placing a junked car or bus in the rocket exhaust flames. The rocket car, fixed in position, tortures the junker, sending sparks into the air. This is especially beautiful at night when the shooting sparks resemble fireworks. George Bitterly wrote that there is the necessity of a division between the economic and political organization of society on one hand, and on the other, an anti-religious and a social organization having as its goal orgiastic participation in different forms of destruction, in other words, the collective satisfaction of needs that correspond to the necessity of provoking the violent excitation that results from the expulsion of heterogeneous elements, 24 SRL aligns itself with the second category as it exists in American culture. In contrast to culture-affirming, nationalistic, middle-class spectacles such as holiday parades, football halftime shows, and the Olympic Games festivities and the Statue of Liberty celebration, two massive public theatrical productions staged by David Wolper 25, the Albert Speer of the 1980s, there are those other events that mirror the joys of conspicuous accumulation with those of mass destruction. Paul Virilio suggests that, next to the Hall of Machines they put a Hall of Accidents, 26 SRL seems to have responded by creating an industrial machine show of mistakes infused with the negative images associated with rock music and horror film, the images of death, destruction, 
riot, crime, and war so loved by the masses, yet denied by official culture. They have created a circus that struggles against becoming an opiate. SRL similarity to these low spectacles, and the use of kitsch, automatically raises questions of class conflict, SRL could be said to employ a form of class primitivism. But unlike modernist primitivism, organized around the law of the exotic and the new, witness the cubist interest in African sculpture, and Dada's love of jazz, SRL is drawn to the familiar and worn out. In this they seem to exhibit a camp aesthetic, an aesthetic that implies the superiority of the viewer, as in the knowing snideness of Jeff Koons, for example. But SRL's work doesn't have this effect. There is no sense of superiority, on the contrary, we experience an all-over quality of degradation. That a happy exotica and music played before the shows acts as soundtrack music for the videotapes and a foil to heighten the horror of the machine show proper, though each comes off as equally dull. Happiness and the horrible are represented by tired clichés. There is a certain pathos in the very failure of these signs to mean as expected. But pathos is denied by the interjection of humor, and even this is qualified, for the humor is one of cruelty, a black humor. Pauline once suggested that his decision to use machines instead of actors was based on the notion that people respond more to a mechanical presence than a human one. This also explains SRL's use of animal corpses and body parts, for the machine and the animal are man's most riveting others, those things that challenge our superiority by their very similarity to us, that provoke an uncanny sense of familiarity, yet are so alien. Indeed, we constantly try to force machines and animals into being non-alien by dressing them up in human garb and personifying them. Television cartoon shows reveal the power that these images exert on the popular imagination, for the majority of them concern either the personified machine, the robot, or the talking animal. The truth of Pauline's observation that people identify themselves more closely with the non-human is revealed by the response SRL receives to their use of dead animals. 4. Of all the disturbing material that they employ, this draws the biggest howls of protest. Disturbing photos taken from animal rights pamphlets are exploited by SRL in their own graphics, furthering the controversy. Like everyone else, SRL buys its meat from the butcher. All the group does is to present this flesh in public, and a flood of collective guilt ensues. The food industry, like the military, operates in secret, meat products bear little resemblance to animals. Yet when recognizable animal flesh is set in a theatrical context, especially when contrasted with the blind activity of machinery, waves of black fantasies are drawn out, the Satanist, the sadist, the inhuman, the animal the nature of men, are the obvious culprits. Not us, we are indignant. SRL's most direct use of personification is in their only non-documentary videotape, A Bitter Message of Hopeless Grief, 1988, a production that differs from the others in its narrative form and adoption of the conventions of filmic reality. No more than a series of tableaus, 
the story depicts a day in the life of some cave-dwelling machine-slash-animal-slash-monsters whose activities consist entirely of fighting, hunting, and destroying, a puppet show version of survival of the fittest. In the tape, the machines lose their mechanical identity almost entirely and take on an animal projection. It reminds me very much of a Disney-type nature docudrama, the kind where personified animals good-heartedly suffer through the trials of the natural world. SRL offers a cruel parody of these kinds of films, obvious allegories of the expected behavior of John Q. Public. Recalling popular depictions of dinosaurs, those behemoths of chaos that fought in prehistoric landscapes of fire and lava before the arrival of man and reason, the protagonists, the symbols of nature, of us, are blind engines of destruction posed in phony sets. SRL's machines are dinosaurs in a number of ways, not only in size and shape but also in their failure. Dinosaurs are the exemplary metaphors of failure, they are extinct. The pathos evoked in SRL's shows by the breakdown of the machinery and mechanical disorder is heightened by the fact that the machines offer a nostalgic representation of dinosaur technology, composed as they are of parts picked from the industrial graveyard. SRL's use of collected trash also links them to the West Coast beat tradition of junk assemblage. Point 27 The use of refuse in beat assemblage is very different from that of its data models. In data assemblage, the junk functions in a timely manner, it pictures a current state. But in beat assemblage, the junk has come to represent timelessness. Like a memento mori, these objects position man in sublime relation to eternity. Viewing them provokes an undefined sense of loss. The current wave of a post-industrial romanticism evident in popular entertainment is manifested in many forms, in cyberpunk science fiction literature, in films like Alien, D.I.R. Ridley Scott, 1979, which picture the future by imaging not sleek space rockets but rather hulking and rusted space tugboats, in David Lynch's films, such as Eraserhead, 1977, set in surreal, crumbling industrial wastelands, and in industrial music, a romanticized, and thus no longer concrete, form of concrete music. Tone poems painting the industrial landscape, our version of the Gothic castle falling into ruin. It is interesting to compare SRL's use of the ruins of industry to the work of Robert Smithson. Smithson was a self-defined classicist whose roots were in the beat movement. He was fixated on the timeless quality of the rotting industrial landscape, which reminded him, simultaneously, of both the long past and distant future. His equation, caveman equals spaceman. Touring the industrial sites of Passaic, New Jersey, he called the decaying industrial structures he found there or monuments to 28 smiths and reveled in seeing the tools of technology become a part of the Earth's geology as they sink back into their original state. Machines like dinosaurs, he continued, must turn to dust or rust. 29 like SRL, Smithson was a fan of the low, of the poetry of technical language, and of science fiction, that allegorical literature that illustrates the present in terms of the past or future. 
It is in his choice of science fiction that the difference between Smithson and the later artist is most clearly revealed. Smithson was drawn to the utopianism of science fiction imagery, to the primal forms and crystalline structures of future architecture. He searched after the timeless, the quotidian extended into geological duration. His interest in the image of decay was that it stopped time. Industrial ruins, he said, rise into decay rather than fall, they are like films run backwards. S.R.L., on the other hand, is interested in decay that maintains its presentness. They are overtly dystopian, drawn to images of intensity, conflict, and corruption. If they are interested in timelessness, it is the timelessness of the struggle for power, which always exhibits itself in particulars, the particular people, places, and things that power covets. The romantic, pathetic, and the spectacular are merely hooks to draw the viewer in. It sets up expectations that are never fulfilled. The work is full of contradictions, populist but confrontational, anti-art yet avant-garde, spectacular but boring, nihilistic yet utopian. Pauline has said that he hopes to draw off the talent that normally would go into the military and product research. He believes that, if offered the choice, many engineers and scientists would rather work for an organization like survival research laboratories, would rather engage in useless destruction than useful destruction. Looking at it in terms of these conflicts, dysfunction is an integral part of their aesthetic. We creatures of steel were ordered to carry the fat ones. Running on tires were ordered to work in their factories. Shaft on shaft for ages our flywheels and driving belts tore you apart. Shout, you motors. A great joy is ours. The fat ones are beaten. From now on, we're free. Vladimir Mayakovsky 30. Death and Transfiguration. JCW. Originally published with the subtitle A Letter from America, Kelly's essay on Paul Theck was commissioned by Daniel Buchholz for the catalogue of the first major exhibition of Theck's work after his death in 1976, Paul Theck, Turin, Castello di Rivara, September 1992, pages 15-20. The catalogue also featured essays by Jean-Christophe Emmen and Gregorio Mognoni. A German translation of Kelly's text was published in Text zu Kunst, Cologne, December 1992, pages 43 to 49. Nothing can prevent me from recognizing the frequent presence of images in the example of the multiple image, even when one of its forms has the appearance of a stinking ass and, more, that ass is actually and horribly putrefied, covered with thousands of flies and ants, and, since in this case no meaning is attachable to the distinct forms of the image apart from the notion of time, nothing can convince me that this foul putrefaction of the ass is other than the hard and blinding flash of new gems. Nor can we tell if the three great images, excrement, blood and putrefaction, are not precisely concealing the wished-for treasure island. Being connoisseurs of images, 
we have long since learned to recognize the image of desire in images of terror, and even the new dawn of that golden age in the shameful Scatologous images. Salvador Dali, The Stinking Ass, 1932, 1. Death of a Hippie, 1967, is the signpost for this change as well as, in my estimation, Thek's masterwork. Here, Thek tackles head on the very material that Warhol shuns in his gallery work. The entombed hippie corpse, the tripping corpse, to borrow a phrase from Raymond Pettibon, 8 is Manson, is the ultimate hell's angel 9 the degraded end of hippie utopianism and the beginning of the notion of hippie as criminal burnout. Perhaps the direct result of his being shot by Valerie Solonis in 1968-10 Warhol is the saintly JFK of the 1960s art world and the factory his Camelot. The shooting was both his artistic assassination and his rise to glory. It signals the end of his association with street culture and ushers him fully into the pantheon of serious artists. It saves him from the bitter fate of being a period artist, the fate that awaited Paul Thek. Thek's complex allegory of the murder of the counterculture is meaningless in an art world that denies that hippies ever existed. Death of a Hippie How can something die that was born dead? Official art culture is much more effective in its control of history than Republican strategists, for it knows that the best way to treat contradictory material is not to rail against it, but simply to pretend it didn't happen. Punk's reactionary anthems shouting, Kill the Hippies, 11 carried within them the seeds of the current neo-hippie revival. Such a return was so inevitable that the punk slogans are revealed as ironic, simply adolescent Oedipal backlash rather than truly ideological. If the punks had really hated hippies, they should have kept their mouths shut. Museum culture lets time do its work for it. Long repressed and forgotten material is reintroduced as cliches corresponding to present trends. Hippies are now a historical archetypes. Few know what led to their rise, or the particulars of their various styles and beliefs. Ideology has been drained from hippiedom, producing a stock character type, a cartoon of American otherness. Americans can only attach themselves to rebellion in this way, as a unitary sign stripped of conflict, its complexity neutered. If hippie aesthetics has found its way into the halls of cultural history, it is only in this way, in the form of works like the paintings of Philip Toff with their snide, winking allusions to 1960s op art and hallucinatory drug culture. A good lesson can be learned by looking at how American critics have responded to the recent upsurge of interest in the French situationists. Major shows of situationist works have been mounted by the Institutes of Contemporary Art in London and Boston and elsewhere, and another show of works by supposedly situationist-inspired punk entrepreneur Malcolm McLaren was at the New Museum in New York. Point twelve. These have been accompanied by a spate of catalogues, books, and essays on the subject, the most popular and grandiose of which is Greil Marcus's Lipstick Traces 13. This romantic homage to the Sex Pistols traces punk's roots back through. Situationism to Dada but it is very careful never to stray too far from the path of sanctioned, entirely European, art history. 
These are serious artists within a lineage of high art. Marcus shoves under the rug all rock history related to grassroots culture and almost all reference to American counterculture. For me, the Sex Pistols make no sense unless they are seen in relation to this lost history. Marcus has constructed a story of rock for those outside of it, tailoring it to their art museum history. The result is cultural history flavored with tasteful old-world spices. You can almost hear the longing in these critics' voices. Why can't we have a serious, intellectual underground culture, they whine. But we do, it's just that they wouldn't touch it with a ten-foot pole. There's nothing to be gained by it. It's not important. How does the relationship of the French situationists to their culture compare to the Yippies' relationship to American culture? What's the difference between Malcolm McLaren's hip capitalism and Frank Zappa's selling out a jokes? 14. How does the Clash's role as a political band compare to that of the MC5? 15. You'll never know. Because all the Americans I've just mentioned are categorized as hippies, not artists. They don't count. Radicalism and art are a contradiction of terms to American museum culture, academic Puritan agitprop of the Hans Hocker variety notwithstanding. It will be a cold day in hell when you see a major American museum mount a show of the cultural production of the Weather Underground or Black Panthers. The Situationists are okay, they French. Paul Thack's Death of a Hippie is a great work of art. It is a shrine to anti-Americanism, to the anti-patriarchal. Yet it speaks in an American language, a low and dirty language. It must, because it's speaking to those who are frightened of the low and dirty, who are its enemies. They are the ones who have positioned you as the low and dirty. The dead hippie is a sign of America's disgust with and hatred of cultural otherness. It is the image of its fear of death, the erotic, gender confusion, and visual opulence, its fear of anti-institutional art, the kind of art you see captured in Larry Clark's photos of crash pads, installations for incorrect living, churches of cultural decay, garbage pits of existence. Point 16. The dead hippie is a statue of creative resistance, murdered. The fingers, the artist's generative organs, have been chopped off and placed in a bag around the figure's neck, souvenirs of the slaughter, like the kill tokens taken by soldiers in Vietnam who fashioned necklaces of human fingers, like the genitals hacked off and stuffed into the mouths of lynched blacks. This corpse is pink. It is pretty decay, and prettiness is a weapon for tech. He admits that one of the inspirations for his technological reliquaries was the work of Larry Bell, one of those critically hated decorative minimalists. Point 17. John McCracken did a series of simple planks in lipstick shades that rested against the wall. Point 18. It was sissy minimalism. Pink is the hippie color. It's fairy dust color, gender bender color, anti-ibeam sculpture color, the color of the new man, the hermaphrodite color. In a procession in honor of aesthetic progress, Thick exhibited sculptures damaged during shipping in a gallery where they were bathed in pink light. He repaired them in this light, and when they were fixed, moved them into a room lit with white light. 
they were reborn. They moved from the womb into the world. Point 19. This contrary prettiness, which has been called his decadent aestheticism, 20 continues to be the most disturbing element of Paul Tech's work. The early works, the technological reliquaries, are the works that are now in vogue. Therefore, coolness, their meanness, their reactionary attitude is what endears them to modern eyes, mine included. But his later works, the cosmic junk piles, the precious little paintings and sculptures, are a harder pill to swallow. They are truly embarrassing, calling to mind crafts more than art. Bunnies, Bambi, Bojangles, Stomach Churning, Sweet Hippie and Middle American Kitsch are combined in sometimes horribly melodramatic situations. Why is this material so hard to reconcile as art? Perhaps because it is our culture, and art is not culture, it is some ritual activity paralleling culture. American culture is best exemplified by Walt Disney or his current reincarnation, Steven Spielberg. Disney's is the official culture, the one that has a name, is in secret dalliance with the low forms that remain anonymous, the unwashed mass of nameless producers of porn, horror, romance, and exploitation genres. He is the sweetness and light shielding us from the dark, dyspeptic universe, Cody Hyun Choi's Pepto-Bismol Paintings. J.C.W. Kelly wrote this brief essay on Cody Choi shortly after the Korean-American artist completed his degree in fine arts at Art Center College of Design, Pasadena. It was first published in Cody, Dip the Pink, Seoul, Korea, Yeung, 1992, and reprinted in Cody Choi, XX Century, New York, Deitch Projects, 1999. A couple of years after the appearance of this piece, Choi redirected his interest in Pepto-Bismol from painting to sculpture in a series of pedestal-mounted statues modeled on the thinker of Auguste Rodin, made with toilet tissue papier-mâché drenched in the pink medium, C. John C. Welchman, culture-slash-cuts, post-appropriation in the work of Cody Hyun Choi, Chapter 8 of Art After Appropriation. Essays on Art in the 1990s, Amsterdam, G Plus B Arts International, 2001. In the United States there is a medicine for stomach cramps and diarrhea called Pepto-Bismol.1 The medicine is a bright pink liquid familiar to everyone, so familiar, in fact, that an American traveling to another country is shocked to find no equivalent for it there. It is sufficiently ubiquitous in the United States that we've come to mistake it for a natural product, there must be some, interior, reason for its color. The pinkness itself must have some soothing quality, its pinkness must be a byproduct of an element integral to its curative powers. Non-pink medicines are lacking this special something. Standing in some foreign airport examining the row of stomach medicines, all of them pinkless, is a revelatory experience, you have your first conscious thought that Pepto-Bismol might be pink because it has been dyed with food coloring. That's when art comes to mind. Art, because you've been duped. The facade of the pink remedy was so seductive it made you believe that something merely decorative was actually essential. Cody Choi is a cultural emissary to America, seeing things as exotic that Americans take for granted.
Arriving from Korea, where pink has different connotations, he is in America to reveal our cultural biases, to make us see the normal and familiar as strange and discomforting. His paintings are overtly decorative, but only to point out the fact that decoration is physically effective. Would Pepto-Bismol work as well as it does if it were not pink? No, it wouldn't. It couldn't. I can think of only one other artwork that actually incorporates Pepto-Bismol, Charles Ray's marble box filled with Pepto-Bismol, 1988. A large open top, white marble cube filled to the brim with Pepto-Bismol, Ray's piece takes as given the medicinal associations of its featured liquid. The box seems to conflate minimalist sculpture and the vomitoriums of ancient Roman arenas. To those versed in Western art history, the mix is an unsettling one, producing a feeling of stability gone sour. Pepto-Bismol aside, it's even hard to recall many artworks that are colored pink. For some reason pink has been deemed an unsuitable color for art. Perhaps it's art's ennobled stature that occasions this relegation. For, when pink is used, it is generally seen as perverse, as something purposefully wrong. John McCracken's plank sculptures from the 1960s are a case in point point two done at the same time as the minimalist work of Donald Judd and Carl Andre. These hot-colored versions of minimalism could not be understood as anything other than contradictory. They seem to be caricatures of minimalism because their color was so unserious, so inappropriate to the sculpture's simplicity of form. Generally, pink is used in fine art as a weapon, deployed deliberately because of its inappropriateness. It is a color too loaded with cultural associations from outside the art context to sit comfortably within it. What, then, are these associations? Well, the primary cultural reference of the color pink is its association with young girls. Pink is the color of little girls' rooms, dresses, and playthings. Measured against the scene of identification, its inappropriateness to art unmasks the masculine orientation of the art world. In the art context, pink things come off as effeminate. Pink is also thought of as a decorative color, and decoration bears similar gendered connotations. It is freely and useless, it dwells in the home and not in culture, it's about facade, not truth. A government building would never be heavily decorated, or pink, either of which would make it seem untrustworthy. But perhaps it is this feminine aura that has made Pepto-Bismol such a popular product. When one is sick, one wants to be mothered. One wants to adopt a submissive a feminine role and be cared for. Pepto-Bismol appears as an image of soothing mother's milk to the adult infant suffering from colic. Symbolically, that is everyone. All of these images, with their associations of sickness and organic, perhaps pathological, decoration, are summoned up when we look at Cody Choi's Pepto-Bismol paintings. My biggest question is, how will these paintings be understood in Korea? Are their associations too American to translate? Will the paintings be viewed, simply, in the lineage of abstract expressionism, and thus exude a kind of cultural exoticism to their Korean viewers. 
The problem of intercultural translation is addressed in the paintings themselves, however, by the fact that some of them are painted on American army blankets. As a child, Choi was profoundly influenced by growing up surrounded by the cast-offs of the Korean War. The intrusion of American culture was ever-present, and perhaps unwelcome. If the pink shapes are the figures in his paintings, the army blankets act as the grounds. Many abstract expressionist paintings adopted from surrealism the notion that visual space is analogous to bodily space. The amorphous space occupied by the abstract shapes and painterly gestures is the inner space of the human body, the dark space of the body cavity or the more mysterious space of the unconscious mind. With the demise of abstract expressionism and the rise of less psychologically oriented and more concrete painting, such as color field, this idea of painted space slowly waned and then itself became concretized. Jerome Kamrowski, a painting teacher of mine and an automatist of the Pollock generation, once described this as a shift from inner space to science fiction space. 3. The black void is now not the domain of the psyche, but of outer space. This conception of space is territorial and not symbolic. When I look at Choi's paintings, I see the dark space of the army blanket as a territory in dispute, as the site of a war of cultures in which various socially specific poetic systems battle it out. Can we assume, then, that this is what viewers on both sides of the Pacific Ocean might discern, that these paintings are glimpses of an unstable world, a dyspeptic universe? Marcel Brutteus JCW Along with a number of other contemporary artists, Kelly was asked to offer a brief response to the work of the Belgian poet, filmmaker, sculptor, and conceptual artist Marcel Brutteus, 1924-76, for the catalogue of the exhibition Marcel Brutteus, Correspondences at the Gallery Hauser and Worth, Zurich, in 1995. Okay, here's what I think of Marcel Brutteus. I think. To be honest, Brutteus is not an artist I have spent much time considering. I know his work is wide-ranging and complex, but I'm not that familiar with it. As I never found its surface aspects very appealing, I've never been inclined to explore it in detail. By that I mean I don't really like the way it looks. The association of Brutteus's works with the recent trend of commodity art has also put me off. His resuscitation seems to ride somewhat on the coattails of that movement which, like much pop art, doesn't appeal to me especially, since I don't find the reduction of the art object to its economic value or position to be very interesting. Brutteus is sometimes linked with the related, more overtly a political tendency toward museological practices, those that focus on, or attempt to deconstruct, the conditions of the public presentation of artwork, usually in more privileged and powerful institutional sites like the museum. All of this leaves me cold. I find it extremely interesting, however, that Brutteus's pieces look so different from the kind of works to which they are usually compared. His works are unruly and provisional in a way that pop, commodity, and museological works rarely are. Visually, 
they remind me quite a bit of the neo-surrealist junk assemblages associated with the beat movement, works that are often overtly nostalgic and interiorized. This is where my respect for Bruteas hits home, because his work is obviously not like that, and it's difficult to figure precisely what it is. I find myself feeling stupid in the presence of his work, because I've been suckered by it. Hokey and obvious it may be, but I fall for its superficial museological ordering. It's a kind of negative seduction. My attempts to stick Bruteas's art into simple historical categories collapse because his systems are just too weird to tie down and his intentions too convoluted to ascertain immediately. Then I feel guilty for wanting his work to look better. It looks just right for the confusing job it does, I guess. Before I even knew they were linked, I felt a kinship between Bruteas and René Magritte and also the early Jim Dine. Both are artists who have made works I respect very much. I like how in their work surface meaning wrestles with whatever other meaning there is. I like how object and language, the material and the mental, intertwine and become confused. This tension is overtly cruel. Magritte is cold, socialized, and mean. Dine is garish, cheap, and obvious. These are compliments. Bruteas, though, is more devious. His work looks sentimental and heartfelt, all the while proclaiming its insincerity. Yet its true insincerity lies in the possibility that Bruteas really is sentimental and heartfelt. He strikes me as a contrary artist who wants to have his cake and eat it too. He desires to be sincere and insincere at the same time. I find that admirable. There is a great tension between the useful and the poetic in Bruteas's work. I very much like his plastic signs. They have a straightforward cleanliness that is denied by both what they convey and the inconsistency of their design elements. The painted, vacuum-formed plastic signs he made for his Musée d'Armodern project, 1968-7275, are a good example. What's with the weird blobby border surrounding the central text in the sign for the Department de Eagles, 1968, that includes the names David, Angra, Wirtz, and Kube, one most of these signs refuse to adhere to any standard design logic. They are quite perverse, but in a very refined way. And, unlike much of his work, they really look good too. Yet probably my favorite works of Bruteas are the muscle shell pieces, like Grande Casserole de Moles, 1966, where the shells heap up beyond the confines of their cooking pots and the lids sit on top. In one way, I like them simply because they're exotic. Unlike the eggshells, which he also uses, muscle shells are not common in America. The pieces, then, already stand in opposition to the international style of much pop, minimalist, and conceptual work. I'm glad about that. The muscle works strike me as overtly regional, yet Bruteas plays simple games with them. While he wrote poems about muscles revealing the complex symbologies he invested in them, the works can be seen simply as arenas of overabundant materials, places where there's too much stuff.
Such pieces are therefore regional and universal, complex and dumbly simple, bland and mysterious, all at once. I find myself hating them, but they continue to intrigue me. What more could you ask of an artwork? I just changed my mind, I prefer the plastic signs. Myth Science JCW This essay was commissioned for the catalogue of the exhibition curated by Eva Schmidt and Udo Kittelman, Oven Falström, The Installations, Osfelden, Kans Verleg, 1995, pages 9-27, to which showed at Gesellschaft für Aktuell Kunst EV, Bremen, November 25, 1995, to January 14, 1996, and at the Konische Kunstverein, Cologne, March 1 to April 21, 1996. Kelly doesn't limit himself here to discussion of Falstrom's installation work, claiming that his exhibitions were installations in and of themselves. Instead, he uses the occasion to outline a context for Falstrom's career as a whole, which he sets in relation to issues in pop art and politics, cartooning, and composition. Happily, Oyvind Falstrom is now starting to be recognized for what he was, one of the most complex artists of the 1960s. While to my mind he is a complete original, until recently Falstrom was considered a minor player in the drama of pop art. He was perceived by the champions of pop as, at best, somewhat naive, and, at worst, a mere throwback to surrealism or agitprop. Why? Well, because he allowed the political to enter his work, because he was interested in issues of narrative, and because his work was compositionally busy. His deviation from pop standards was explained away by the fact that he was European. In America the battle lines were drawn, any hints of the old abstract expressionism, and its distant father, surrealism, would be excised from the serious artwork. Psychoanalytic references were taboo, and social concerns were something quaintly old-fashioned, antiquated matters that concerned grandpa in the 1930s. Pop art was youth culture formalism. Despite its surface topicality, pop was timeless, its images meaningless. Only their compositional position, centralized and uninflected, was important. Pop reflected a world where all meaning was surface meaning, a uniform gloss. You could choose to read this as social commentary, if you were so inclined. It was up to you. But while different critics embrace pop in various ways, one thing was certain, compared to the cool of artists like Warhol and Liechtenstein, Falstrom was hot. Some thought Falstrom was telling a retrograde, anti-pop tale, dressing it up in pop's fashionable clothing point one. More recently, the supporters of the agitprop sensibility have championed Falstrom point two these critics accept the same divisions, they believe in the same insurmountable chasm dividing the formal from the political, but they stand on the hot side. They want Falstrom alongside them, espousing social truths in a popular language aimed at the masses. But Falstrom's work is not as simple as that. In fact, Falstrom is a formalist of sorts. 
His arrangements of topical and historical materials have no more narrative coherence than the image combinations of James Rosenquist or Robert Rauschenberg. Fallström is interested in having his work function optically. By this I mean that he sets things up in such a way that one is prompted to look through the image as content to see it as pure form. His use of the silhouette promotes this effect. Yet, unlike Rauschenberg, for example, Falström acknowledges that the viewer always attempts to read a collection of images and make sense of them, and does this in terms of a common, socialized, visual language. His work is overtly about this impulse to read, which he plays with and subverts in various complex ways. The exchange between legibility and opacity produces, he suggests, the thrill of tension and resolution, of having both conflict and non-conflict, as opposed to free form where in principle everything is equal, three thus, while Falström constructs image constellations that are impossible to read as simple narrative, he strives to keep them from becoming non-committal. For he differentiates his practice in this regard from Rauschenberg's, which, he says, tends to neutralize all statements. Through a pattern of relationships and thus achieves a state of total weightlessness of elements five at the time, there was a tendency to see this a flattening as a kind of artistic nihilism, and, in fact, the pop artists were first perceived as neodatists. Falström, by contrast, saw his use of fracture and leveling as constructive and thus not dada at all six. Falström's tactics have more in common with the ambitions of the conceptualists than with those of the pop artists. But while his interest in game strategies as an organizational principle clearly links him to conceptual art, Falström's use of popular imagery is inconsistent with most conceptualist practice. Conceptual artists generally kept their distance from material associated with low culture, focusing instead on informational forms like photography and typography. Falström, however, had little regard for uniformity of style, feeling these kinds of class-based image distinctions were unimportant. For him, style was largely irrelevant apart from the content and experience it could convey. He felt painting should remain invisible, it should be a carrier of meaning and not remain simply self-referential. Point seven. This indifference to the fetishistic aspect of the artwork led him to conclude that artworks should, preferably, be produced as multiples. Point eight. Today, in the wake of a neoconceptualist generation that accepts as a given the postmodern plurality of styles. It is easier to see Falström's practice as a kind of deconstruction deploying the popular signs which surround us every day. Rather than as an exercise in raising low cultural material to the lofty realm of fine art. This deconstruction is predicated on the construction of an artistic world in the form of a model. Falström's preference is for multi-part works, the various elements of which are organized in complex interrelationships that imply system and narration. This tendency inclined his work toward art that had decisive spatial and temporal aspects, work that was theatrical. We can see such a turn even in his early abstract paintings, done while he was still living in Sweden. 
Pontus Halton describes Folström's presentations of Odeledic Nenda II between 1955 and 1957 as a kind of performance. Folström would exhibit the painting covered by a sheet with holes cut in it so that only sections were exposed. Point nine, he would then explain these areas to the assembled company by reading from a thick, typed manuscript that contained his written analysis and topographical maps of the work. Point ten, he claimed that this presentation in parts prevented the audience from becoming distracted by other elements of the painting during the analytic process. But it was not only the presentation of the painting that was organized in this manner, Folström composed it using the same process, covering the part of the canvas he was not working on so as not to be seduced by overall aesthetic considerations or competing details. Point 11 His method called for the construction of separate cells whose interrelationships were revealed only when the entire work was completed. This compositional technique reflects Folström's geopolitical views, which called for urban decentralization and communalism. Point 12 The overall equality of composition is to be read as democratic, rather than nihilistic and chaotic. Each part is as important as every other part of the painting, but each is considered in turn, first as an autonomous unit, then in relation to the system as a whole. The whole thus becomes more than a sum of its parts, more than a mere compilation. At this time, Folström's pictorial signs were still abstract, recalling, on the surface at least, the pictographic matrices of some of the late surrealist artists of the 1940s and 50s who came under the influence of Jungian theory. Adolf Gottlieb's work comes to mind, point 13, but if you look more closely, their concerns are almost antithetical. Folström doesn't offer an array of timeless or primitive, archetypal signs, referring to some universal UR language. His abstract marks are grouped typographically and imbued with specific character traits. These marks interact in the pictorial field in a very specific and narrative manner determined by a complex set of game-like rules. The painting can be read as a kind of model universe, with composition acting as the visual clue allowing us to unravel its politics. Folström invented three character forms that dominate his painting, the Aids, the Ledics, and the Nandas, which he describes as akin to alien clans involved in a struggle for power. Point 14 Hans Hoffmann's push-pull precept 15 is re-envisioned in social terms, compositional tension symbolizes dialectical argumentation. The written narrative accompanying Odeledic Nanda II has a sci-fi flavor, its title is derived from a short story by the science fiction writer A. E. Van Voigt. Point 16 Science fiction is a genre where the shift of time is a transparent device, everyone knows that the futures it describes are actually versions of the present illustrated in the terms of a parable. Easily misinterpreted as a historical, Folström's abstract pictographs were soon replaced by overtly timely ones. In Feast on Mad, a drawing from 1958-59, various graphic elements taken from comic illustrations in the popular satirical Mad Magazine 17 are decontextualized and rearranged in a chaotic cluster. In setting 1962, Elements taken from DC Adventure and Superhero Comics are similarly decontextualized, there are recognizable details of Batman's cape. 
Here, however, the original context is more obvious. The painting is composed in a compartmentalized fashion recalling the sequential frames used in comic book narratives, but presented in such a way that the frames no longer read sequentially. Again, Falstrom's use of the comic book image is not an exercise in high-slash-low displacements, as in Liechtenstein, for example, instead, he plays with temporality and narrative. For Falstrom the comic strip was a narrative form situated halfway between the novel and film 18 and he was interested in it for this reason, not because it represented kitsch in general. Comic books offered a potentially rich pictorial source reflecting contemporary mythologies, values, and belief systems in clear image tropes comprehensible to the culture at large. By the end of the 1960s, Falstrom was also using photographic images taken from the popular press, both serious and tabloid. Presented in their normal narrative context, these image tropes remain invisible and thus natural. Using a technique similar to collage, Falstrom reveals that these tropes are manufactured, often arbitrarily coded, and thus unnatural. As man-made images, they are politicized, and Falstrom represents them as deliberately constructed towards specific social ends. Falstrom's interest in the liquidity of meaning, in image signification defined by context, led him soon after to abandon fixed composition. Shifts of relationship, implied earlier through simultaneous depictions of a sign in various interactions within the visual field, were replaced by a decision to make the various elements in the paintings movable, thus facilitating the possibility of change over time. Point 19 in sitting. Six months later, 1962, the elements of the painting have been magnetized and can be moved about, producing a variable painting, a kind of latent kinetic artwork. Falstrom continued to produce variable paintings until his untimely death in 1976. This exhibition focuses on three of Falstrom's installations, The Little General, Pinball Machine, 1967, Meatball Curtain, 4 Crumb, 1969, and Garden, A World Model, 1973. As I have already suggested, from the very beginning Falstrom's work had strong spatial and temporal aspects, his exhibitions were installations in and of themselves. The variable artworks were generally shown alongside related fixed it pieces that revealed its various phases, preferred arrangements of the variable paintings determined by the artist, as well as sketches that shed light on their source materials. These were complemented by completely separate artworks that use some of the same images in different configurations. The ideational constructions of the artwork, as well as its various permutations over time, were presented as a whole. Falstrom strove to create total artworks, hence his fondness for happenings. Opera was also an important model, not only because it aimed for synthesis, but because, as he wrote, it demonstrates the immorality of art, its readiness to profit from and transform into art anything at all to stimulate and broaden our self-awareness, which in turn can or need not be made to serve a political end. 20. He felt the artist, like the composer or writer, should make fewer, bigger, 
and more complete works. Point 21 In fact, one of Falstrom's earliest and most important pieces is titled Opera, a massive drawing that he worked on from 1952 to 1957. Composed horizontally, this giant, additive work wraps around the room, enveloping the viewer and promoting a sense of narrative progression. Falstrom was very interested in pre-Columbian Mexican book paintings, which evolved in long panels, folded concertina fashion, 22 in opera. Falstrom's abstract pictographs develop progressively from panel to panel in a manner analogous to the recurrence of motifs in music or of characters in a comic strip. The scale of the work forces the viewer to engage the picture physically, with the whole body, not just the eyes. More important, its vastness makes it impossible to take the work in as a whole. Point 23 It can only be experienced as a sum of experiences, as a gestalt. That installations in this exhibition offer further examples of Falstrom's larger scaled works, representing some of the strategies that characterize various parts of his career. The Little General, Pinball Machine, 1967, is the largest of a group of sculptural works in which Falstrom's signature silhouette elements float in rectangular, table-like pools of water. The related works are Parkland Memorial, 1967, The Dante Virgil Skating Race, 1968, and Blue Pool and Green Pool, both 1968-69. The water in the two latter works is dyed and functions analogously to the monochrome pictorial fields of some of Falstrom's variable paintings, such as Sylvie, 1965, or Pentagon Diptych, 1970. The pools can be seen as variable paintings shifted from a vertical to a horizontal orientation, from parallel to the wall to parallel to the floor, a move that stresses their theatrical, puppet-show-like aspect. As with the variable paintings, which allow for the movement of the individual magnetized figures within their metal grounds, the elements here float freely about in their aquatic pictorial fields, except for the Dante Virgil skating race, in which the water is literally frozen, fixing the elements in position. Composition is liquid. Unlike the cartoonish or paper doll-like silhouettes of some other works, the silhouettes in the Little General are photographic, drawn from a variety of sources, including cheap advertising images, lurid headlines and photos from tabloid newspapers, cheesecake nudie shots, leftist imagery, such as a Pepsi bottle turned Molotov cocktail, and popular figures, ranging from the youthful Shirley Temple to Lyndon Johnson and Che Guevara, among others. The subtitle of the work, Pinball Machine, presents all of this as an active, festive game. The work is more overtly garish and outlandish, and more random-looking, than the other works in the series. The variety of source materials calls to mind those montage sequences in end-of-the-year news summaries which barrage the viewer with an incomprehensible array of newsworthy events with no apparent context except their status as signs of what is current. While Falstrom's notes and a fixed model for the work reveal the presence of an underlying associational system and certain privileged connections, the surface jolt of the piece is one of overt humor, reflecting the absurdist politics of the Yippies, Youth International Party, and the New Left in general, 
with which Falström was actively involved. Despite the seeming randomness of the work, its evident political aura makes it difficult to view in terms of the leveling effect characteristic of more formalized pop art. Falström plays with the viewer's tendency to split political or from formal readings, refusing to succumb to the common dictate that these terms must be set in opposition. Point 24 This is Falström's real contribution to the art world of the late 1960s. Unfortunately, it was not much recognized at the time. The Meatball Curtain, 4R, Crumb, a massive work done as part of the art and technology program of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, was made two years later, in 1969.25 LACMAS program paired artists with companies which assisted them in the production of an artwork utilizing the special equipment or resources they had at their disposal. Falstrom chose to work with Heath and Company, a maker of commercial signs which manufactured the sort of huge illuminated signs that adorn gas stations and fast food restaurants such as Kentucky Fried Chicken, and specialized in working with plastics and metals. Interestingly, while Falstrom was in Los Angeles on a site visit, he was introduced to Zap Comics and ended up making a work utilizing the imagery he found there. Started in San Francisco in 1967, Zap was one of the first underground comic books made by, and geared toward, the hippie subculture. Falstrom had done an earlier work using imagery derived from Mad Magazine, so it's not surprising that he would be drawn to Zap. Zap cartoonists were the much more radical, countercultural descendants of the artists who worked for the socially satirical Mad Magazine during its heyday in the 1950s. The Zap artists openly defied the Comics Code Authority of America, 26, which monitors comic book content, by wallowing in the very subjects that the code was designed to censor sex, violence, drugs, and left-wing politics. Robert Crumb is by far the most famous of the Zap Comics artists, and most of the imagery in Falstrom's work was taken from his drawings. Point 27 The title itself, Meatball Curtain, was derived from a crumb story called Meatball, in which meatballs fall from the sky, striking people and causing a sort of instant satori. Falstrom describes the Meatball Curtain as an a homage to Robert Crumb. A Great American Artist 28 the work is an ensemble of large freestanding metal and plastic cutouts. Once again, there are silhouettes, but this time radically simplified, with little of the detail and graphic outlining found in earlier Falstrom works. Because of this simplicity, one is tempted to see the work as a reaction to the then-current trend in minimal, brightly painted public sculpture of the Alexander Calder or David Smith variety. The Zap references, however, are quite specific, and the work is extremely baroque and playful in form. Falstrom described his interest in the silhouette as a way of putting emphasis on the character or type of an element. Point 29 This use of the silhouette promotes the double reading of the element as either a sign or an abstract form. In the meatball curtain, as in the variable paintings, these isolated silhouettes are used to create a shifting, organic whole. The silhouettes function as parts of a machine to make paintings, a picture organ 30 in this work, 
the emphasis is more on the abstract, and I don't find I have the same impulse to project a narrative onto the relationships as in the works that contain more detailed elements. The Meatball Curtain is one of Folstrom's most light-hearted works, a kind of countercultural sculpture garden. Garden, a world model, 1973, represents the final phase of Folstrom's work, starting in 1971, when he became interested in using current historical and economic data, commonly accepted factual material. The World Bank installation, 1971, is the first work that Folstrom described as being entirely based on such material.31 pictorial images derived from popular sources that were the core of the variable paintings were replaced by images drawn by Folstrom himself. I believe this was a radical decision. Folstrom's use of appropriated material produced the sense that the artist was something of a sociologist, somehow standing outside of the culture whose myths he was deconstructing. This is a fallacy, of course, and, despite the freedom he afforded the viewer in interpreting them, Folstrom's work is littered with clues about his own ideological positions. But I think Folstrom's decision to use his own pictorial system is a sign of his uneasiness with this anonymity. As evidenced by the continuing war between so-called neo-expressionists and neo-conceptualists, from pop art on, the trace of the hand has been a loaded issue. The defining trait of pop is the use of generic illustrations or photographs drawn from, or mimicking the style of, mass media. Pop's cool aesthetic is dependent on this use of images that read as being general, referring to society at large, rather than being expressive or indicative of a specific personality. By introducing into his work a gestural manner recognizably his own, Falstrom called into question the pictorial convention of authorlessness and anonymity, a convention that is essentially class-based and reflects an ideology that seeks to prolong the useless distinction between so-called low and high art. What else could explain the fact that in the fine art world Liechtenstein is considered the sole author of images lifted with only minimal changes from other artists? To people familiar with comic book illustrators, the images that Liechtenstein quotes are immediately recognizable as the work of specific cartoonist.32 but to the general viewer, this kind of image is read as a sign of cartoons in general, which are synonymous with the low, with the reading habits of children or the illiterate lower classes. To the upper-class viewer, a cartoon symbolizes the undifferentiated mass mind of the working classes. Falstrom's own style is a kind of loose cartooning. He had, in a sense, learned the language of cartooning well enough to speak it rather than quote it. Yet Falstrom's position within the domain of fine art prevents his comic-style imagery from being completely transparent. By virtue of their context, it is impossible to see his cartoons as simple, invisible carriers of the information they illustrate. They are too idiosyncratic to be seen within the tradition of agitprop, in which the artist tends to become invisible in order to appear the spokesman of the masses. Nor do they decontextualize and formalize the cartoon illustration, as with Liechtenstein. Instead, 
Through the formal complexity of his composition and information groupings, Falstrom very self-consciously subverts the viewer's various impulses to read popular images. He does not heroize them as symbols of the common man, nor does he treat them simply as vernacular symbols. Instead, he poses them as elements of a visual language whose syntax, like that of concrete poetry, can be altered and rearranged. With a dizzying and conflicted array of factual material presented using this language, and by presenting cartoons in an unnatural way, Falstrom works against the implication that a popular lexicon represents a homogeneous audience. The cartoon's naturalism lies in its air of anonymity, in its invisibility, which is why cartoons lend themselves so well to use in agitational propaganda. They have an air of truth about them, they appear as given, pre-existing, unconstructed. Falstrom's busy, unstable compositions and information overloads throw this naturalism into question. The only true political image is the unnatural one, the one that challenges preordained and unquestioned pictures of reality. 33 This unnaturalism, however, does not necessarily imply a desire to escape the pictorial, it can be understood as a dissection of the pictorial. The secret language of pictorial conventions must be revealed as a construct, otherwise one remains the unwitting pawn of its shaping influence. This is what Falstrom does with his strange use of mass media conventions. The dissection of the natural is Falstrom's politic. The finest example of Falstrom's factual period is World Map, 1972, which presents a topography of current historical facts separated from each other by boundaries reminiscent of national borders. You soon realize that these borders are random, produced by a pictorial necessity that is driven, in turn, by the amount of information each zone contains. This play with borders is most apparent in At Five in the Afternoon, Chile to The Coup. Words by Plath and Loka 1974. Here, the recognizable silhouette of Chile becomes the site of connection between various other random silhouettes, attached to it by long needle-like feelers, which contain images by Falstrom illustrating excerpts of the poetry of Sylvia Plath and Federico Garcia Lorca. The enclosing forms are now much more extravagant and baroque than those of world map. That the political form of Chile is thrown into sharp contrast with the aesthetic of forms hovering about it. In 1974, Falstrom wrote, Recently I have been making hundreds of improvisations to arrive at shapes that are interesting in themselves, and totally unnatural to the factual content and the space needed for the facts. These forms, he continues, have something of the surprising beauty of tropical fish, 34 Garden, a world model uses these kind of extravagant forms in a way similar to the use in At Five in the Afternoon but plays up their aesthetic qualities by presenting them as flowers growing out of pots. The material contained by these flowers is the same kind of information used in world map, historical and economic data. Garden can be seen as an intermediate work, Lying between world map and at five in the afternoon, it still uses historical data, but presents it in a much more opulent frame. 
The piece can be described as an installation in that it is presented within a green room as an environmental tableau. But this is done in a highly simplified way, which is not nearly as complex, formally, as Meatball Curtain or Falstrom's installation masterwork Dr. Schweitzer's last mission, 1964-66, which I consider his most important variable painting. The stripped-down quality of garden, a world model makes it look somewhat like a product display. It recalls Falstrom's World Bank installation, which was similarly arranged as a simple monolithic display, presented by itself in a match-color-coded room. Garden has a pathetic quality, by that, I mean that the isolation of the work in a room by itself may be read as a display of false grandeur. The beauty of the installation, with its complex jungle-like shadow effects, purposely grates against its disturbing historical and economic content, producing a confusion of emotional effects. Soon after this, in at five in the afternoon and the beautiful variable painting night music too, Cancer Epidemic Scenario, Words by Trackel, Loker and Plath, 1975, in which both the field and the magnetized informational elements are highly Baroque forms, historical effects are replaced by effects taken from poems. Commenting on his use of such material in at five in the afternoon, Falstrom writes, the loss of Chile cannot be expressed merely by depicting a succession of events, 35 in these final works before his death from cancer in 1976, Falstrom proclaims the reality of art. Historical facts are as mythic as literary constructs, and art, on the psychic level, is just as real as this worldly material. Functioning in a symbolic world, the artist nevertheless affects our perception of the real world. The artist's problem is to devise games interesting enough to bridge the gap. Falstrom continues to stand the test of time because he did just that. The realm of myth. A myth among other things. Is basically in the category of an idea. The vibration radiation of an idea activates itself manifested synchronization. A lie among other things is basically in the category of a myth. The myth is of images. Because the myth and that which is of the myth is the activator of unlimited imagination. Parallel to or more. Synchronized to that which is not. Everything is of a particular science and myth is no exception. Witness, science fiction and the manifestation of itself to a living what is called reality or so-called reality. As a science myth has many dimensions and many degrees. Tomorrow is said to be a dimension of myth. Or even the very realm of myth itself. When it is said that. Tomorrow never comes. Thus when we speak of the future, we speak of a lie. Because the future is tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. 36. Sun RA 197237 Postscript. I met Oivan Falstrom in late 1975, I think, in New York City. I was then a student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and, on occasion, I would go to New York to check out the real art world. I was already a huge fan of Falstrom's work and, Luckily, he happened to be in an exhibition at the time.
I can't remember for sure, but I think it was a group show of graphics. Anyway, even though it wasn't a solo exhibition, Folstrom was in attendance. I introduced myself and asked if he would be interested in doing a lecture at the university. Folstrom was a shy person, and I'm sure he had no interest whatsoever in doing a lecture at a boring Midwestern university. Unfortunately for him, I had one of those needling, never-give-up personalities and kept bothering him until he finally agreed. He came to speak at U of M in April 1976, and since I was totally responsible for his visit, pretty much all of the organization was left up to me. I had absolutely no experience doing such things and was quite naive about university protocol. Getting the administration to do anything for Folstrom was equivalent to pulling teeth. The whole situation was horrible, and, in my estimation, Folstrom was treated very poorly. I ended up regretting asking him to come. I had to pick Folstrom up at the airport myself and drive him to the college in my junker car that, literally, had no floor on its passenger side. Folstrom brought large format glass transparencies of his works, and the audiovisual department was not equipped to show them. Eventually, he projected them by laying them flat on an overhead projector, so that much of the detail was lost. Nevertheless, the lecture proceeded smoothly. Afterwards, since the university had made no plans for the evening, I asked a few of the faculty members if they would like to go to dinner with Folstrom and me. After eating at a local restaurant, I was shocked when none of the faculty members offered to cover the check and charge it to the school, something I just assumed would be done. This led to a heated argument, which must have greatly embarrassed Folstrom. Finally, after one of the teachers consented to put the dinner on his credit card, I took Folstrom to a local bar to meet and have drinks with some of the students who had attended his talk. Afterwards, while driving Folstrom back to his hotel, we were stopped by the police, probably because of my sleazy looks. I remember Folstrom being quite angry because of this, since the police had stopped me for no reason and it was obviously just harassment. This endeared him to me greatly. Then, when we were almost back to where he was staying, he realized he had left a book at the bar, a copy of Sylvia Platt's poetry. Folstrom would write notes and draw little sketches in the margins of this book as he read it, and these were later elaborated into finished artworks. He was extremely upset at the prospect of losing this book, which he had spent so much time working on, and which meant a great deal to him. Amazingly, when we returned to the bar, the book was still there, truly a miracle. The next day, I picked Folstrom up and took him back to the airport. He didn't have too much to say. This trip could only have bolstered what I assume, on the basis of his work, was Folstrom's conspiratorial view of the world. I was ashamed by how things had turned out and never spoke to Folstrom again. He died seven months later of cancer. I decided to end this essay with a poem by Sun R.A. because I have long commingled Falstrom's and Sun Ra's works in my mind. I discovered them around the same time and see many similarities between them. Both believe in synthesis, 
in complexity over simplicity, both have a disregard for signature style, and both proclaim the importance of art as a force for changing consciousness and the world. Both believe that you should not talk down to your audience, yet both use popular modes of address that are radically transformed, perverted, you might say, to get their points across. To borrow a San Are term, they are both myth scientists of the highest caliber.